Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show where we talk about short video games, games that respect your time. I'm your host, Reagan Kelly, and joined by two awesome co-hosts, Laura Nash. How are you doing, Laura? I'm doing pretty splendid. And Nate Heininger. How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. Glad to be here. Me too. And uh, I'm really glad to be finally talking about a game that I have been looking forward to and kind of, you know tracking the development of for a good long time. This is an amazing time for incredibly long development time indie games finally popping (laughs) into existence, what with Inside and now Quadrilateral Cowboy coming out within the space of a month of each other. I don't know what to do with myself. Does No Man's Sky fit in that? Oh yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's either feast or famine with, with the indie game scene i really don't know what considerations go into deciding when exactly to release something but i guess that you know early august or whatever must be a sweet spot for some reason i don't know if there's really a uh, christmas season for indie games it's late enough in the summer that people have gotten over the fact that it's nice outside and they're okay sitting indoors and it's not quite uh time to compete with triple a games over christmas that's my proposal yeah sounds reasonable to me yeah and uh this week we are talking about quadrilateral cowboy which we've actually mentioned briefly long time back on this show i I don't remember exactly when but i know we've talked about it quadrilateral cowboy is the long-awaited uh follow-up from brendan chung and his company uh blendo games it's the follow-up to 30 flights of loving which is so short that we ended up not doing an episode on it. Did you guys play 30 Flights of Loving? I think it was I think it was pre before my time. Um 30 Flights of Loving is a basically 15 minute short story or maybe a little longer than that depending on how you move through it. Well, it came out I think in 2012 or 2013 and uh, it was a sort of an indie uh darling. It got a lot of press relative to its length. But th- in that case it was really worth the time. Like uh 30 Flights of Loving is an exquisitely perfectly crafted tiny little short story. Um light on gameplay uh but very strong on style and just kind of world building without it, it, Showing rather than telling. It's a really, really neat game. So um, does it actually share a universe with Quadrilateral Cowboy, or is it more of a stylistic predecessor? As far as I understand it, it's both. Um, so Brendan Chung's style uh, is very visually distinct. He's got these very square models. All of his characters are like rectangle heads. They're just sort of square characters. I think if you played... Um, uh, Jazz Punk, which we talked about a while back on the show, you have a kind of a good idea of what the game is going to look like, although perhaps even more so, but also I think a little bit more carefully crafted. Yeah, I will say that when I first saw the square-headed, blocky characters, I thought a lot of um, Saga, the TV head characters. Oh, yeah. And I thought of, um, you know, kind of the Minecraft Lego, you know, kind of block, but I realized after a while they were not TV heads. I honestly yeah. thought they were for a good 30 seconds. <laughs> they are perfect cube heads, which is pretty deceptive. Um, they kind of spring it on you in a really funny way, too. Uh, when you first see your own character uh, as a as a person, you're like, you jump up a uh, like into an attic and right 
there at the top is a huge mirror, and that's the first time you see your character, at least the first time that I noticed my character, and it's just looking you right in the face, this big block face. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I definitely walked back and forth and kind of showed myself off a bit. Oh, yeah. Sure. It is, so it is first person, and it's made with the Quake engine. In this case, actually, like, 30 Flights of Loving was done with the Quake 2 engine, so it's very deliberately using antique... Uh, a you know game engine in order to kind of give a certain look and feel to the game. This game, um, Brendan Chung moved forward a bit to use the um, I guess, think it's called like ID Tech Four engine. I think it's the same engine that was used in Quake Four. So actually, technology technologically, it's a lot more advanced under the hood, but it still has the look of something that could easily have run, uh, although perhaps couldn't actually have run uh, on a, like a four eighty six. And I think that's a very deliberate choice, given the subject matter and sort of uh, style here. And unlike Inside, this worked just fine in Parallels. (laughs) (laughs) Computer had no problem with that. And so antique computers or low-spec, you know, low-tech interfaces are kind of on display and and center stage here. Because uh, Brendan Chung's world that he's building here is something that he calls... Uh, 20th century cyberpunk, that being, you know, 20th century might sound uh, off the tongue a little bit advanced, but in fact, we're talking about the 80s, 1980s. And so this is, uh, this is a cyberpunk world of the far future 1980. But I will say that it doesn't have the uh, kind of neon thing you might be thinking of in cyberpunk world. It's much more of the actual 1980s, like Halt and Catch Fire. There's a lot of wood paneling still left over from the 70s. Oh, yeah. Halt and Catch Fire is a good touch point for this. This is like if the Halt and Catch Fire characters decided to use their computer knowledge for evil and infiltrate their competitors or, you know, hack into the... Yeah, it's, it's really... Um, it, it's really quaint and cute in a way. Uh, there's this sort of contrast between the like high technology of what you're doing with this intense hacking action um, and the equipment and environment that you're doing it with which looks like uh like a windows 98 computer game uh that takes place in 1978 you know i'll say not that in Intense, yes, but not that high stakes because you're just planning your heist. You're not actually grabbing anything except for the very beginning of the game. Yeah, yeah. The intro to the game is a really good setup, though, so we should probably kind of talk our way through it a little bit. Well, it's a pretty cool start. You're on a uh, a hover bike, I guess, or at least they call it a hover bike. Um, mm-hmm. And you pull up beside a train, and it's a good old-fashioned train heist. So you uh, jump on the back of the train, um, make your way through, um, you know, discovering that, oh, buttons on the wall are interactable. In fact, almost everything that's not nailed down is interactable. Uh, You can pick up boxes, chairs, whatever. Um, You can throw them, um, rotate them, whatever you want to do. You just pick up objects and drop them on the floor because you can't put them (laughs) back easily. Yeah, you know what's funny about this was that it, the thing that it most reminded me of, the environments and just the little interactable objects, is it reminded me a ton of Katamari Damacy. Like, Katamari Damacy, you get that... First off, the the aesthetic is that incredibly low-poly renderings of everyday mm-hmm. objects that make them somehow charming in their kind of shittiness. Um, and you kind of have that here, these really dense environments with tons of, tons of stuff lying around. 
Um, but every single one of them, you can pick it up, you can rotate it, and you can look at how much time Brendan Chung and presumably his team spent putting detail and also stripping away detail from these incredibly minimalist and yet incredibly well-crafted, like, low-poly models of everyday objects. Yeah, and if you're like me, um, you who... I feel like I'm relatively good at, like, puzzle-esque games, but I also tend to get distracted by stuff. And this game is pretty linear uh, as far as how the heists work. And I'd be like, oh, wait, got to clear this shelf. There could be something on this shelf. <laughs> and you just <laughs> end up you know, being totally unnecessary, but it's fun to be able to interact in that way. Yeah. And it kind of rewards you if you want to take the time to take every little object off of a shelf, because first off you can, you know, you can pick every book off of every shelf in this game and turn them over and read a little bit of text on some of them or pick up a bunch of paperwork and read every sheet. Um, so it does reward you for kind of taking the time to go down those little rabbit holes. Um, it's not a real heist. You have time to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, with our first heist, it is theoretically in-game an actual thing that's occurring. So we're breaking into this train, uh, and we make it past a variety of little um, uh, security systems by doing some very light hacking. You can see, see that this is sort of like a light tutorial. And so what that means would be things like, I need to open this door. Let me plug my tiny, crappy little circuit board with a screen and two buttons on it into the wall here. And then I, I can see a list of commands that I can use. Those are be those will be commands that eventually we'll have to start typing in ourselves. But at this point, you're just uh, entering them from a from a selection menu, uh, and those commands will be things like door nine dot open parentheses three and parentheses, meaning door number nine open for three seconds. Um, that sort of thing, and so it really eases you into what could at first seem like a very daunting idea. We're playing a first-person puzzle game that has features a command line interface. That sounds really daunting. Command line interface in, in general can turn a lot of people off, but it does a brilliant job of sliding you into it by first giving you a taste of it in terms of menu selections rather than typing. Yeah, um, I think this comparison will make even you know more sense later as we kind of get into the more intricacies of the hacking, but... Um... It made me think of a human resource machine, which oh, we yeah. did very recently, um, which takes the concept of coding or, um, you know, algorithmic mathematics on a computer um, and boils it down to a really, really, you know, nice and fun little interface that doesn't actually require you to know how to code or know how to um you know, create these math equations, but you get the feeling like you do once the game really gets going and it's, and it can be pretty satisfying to uh, execute these hacks, even though, um, you know, you're just typing the things that it ultimately at one point told you how to type. I will say that if you've never programmed before, human resource machine is a little more accessible and that, in that it will do a little more handholding. This one, if you've never seen a command line interface, you can figure it out, but there might be some awkward typing into the computer. This starts out seeming a little more daunting, but Human Resource Machine very quickly starts adding a lot of complexity on oh, things yes. like loops and uh, you know if-then type of statements that never make an appearance here. You know, this game seems like it's going to introduce you to uh, hacking slash programming concepts, but really it's mostly about spatial problem solving in a three-dimensional space. Um, you know, it's just taking what uh, what would probably in any other stealth game be like 
you know, I've got my special door opening gun. I fire this gun at a door and it opens doors. And instead, you have a laptop and you type into that laptop to do those things. And what that really adds to the game, I think, is that this gives you like a real feeling of like a sort of a one-to-one relationship between what you as the player are doing and what your in-game character is doing. You know, if you're playing something like Watch Dogs and hacking, quote-unquote, involves, um, you know, you hit a triangle button on your controller and your character gets out a phone which just instantly says hacking complete and then you've got a list of all the bank details of the people standing near you that doesn't feel like you've hacked anything but standing in a uh, standing in a train car with your lap find you have to find a table to set your laptop on set down your laptop and start typing in commands to it and you know you as the player you're typing those commands yourself that feels like hacking even though it's incredibly simple what you're actually doing, it feels like hacking in a way that I've never seen in a in a game that involved a hacking-type mechanic before. Yeah, it's also a very satisfying, um, as the, the, the sound and the feel of the, the digital keyboard. I mean, you're pressing <laughs> on your keyboard, but, like, it, it just kind of feels nice the way the screen um, populates it. It's kind of nice. And also, you said you have to sit your laptop on a table. Not true. You can just throw that shit on the ground and <laughs> and, and type right from there, which is mm-hmm. funny, but also oftentimes kind of irritating, because if you throw it down, it makes a bad bounce. It'll be upside down, and you go and try to hack, and the whole screen's upside down, so you have to back out of the hack screen, pick it back up, and set it back down normal. But they do, they, they also, like, you know, for whatever reason in this world, uh, everyone builds a lot of Nice little shelves right next to their doors. Um, they they really, I think, is a way the game uh, actually kind of uh, holds your hand a little bit or teaches you without actually, like, saying, hack here. Yeah. There'll be a uh, a shelf seemingly where a shelf wouldn't normally be. You know, I'm probably going to need to put my laptop or my deck, as it's called in the game, um, I'm going to need to put my deck on that shelf. Yeah, you really get a uh, like a sense that they've done a lot of playtesting on this. I mean, obviously, it's been in development for years. They've had time. But uh, it, it it's very polished in that way. Like, you can tell that they really gave a lot of thought to how people are, who are playing this game for the first time are going to encounter each new concept, how they're going to learn it, and how they're going to progress. And I never found any place in this game where I got really frustrated. I found a few places where I got stumped for a bit, but it's just incredibly well thought out in terms of how you... The, the whole game feels like one large tutorial for these very clever and uh, and fun-to-use hacking tools. Um to the point where that might yep. actually be a fault in the game that we might talk about a little bit later, but like it, it does an amazing job of teaching you these tools. I did get stuck a couple times, um, but that was mostly standard. Like, oh, I didn't see that port on the side of that grate that mm. you know I can hack into and open things like that. Uh, but once I, once you kind of, it, it's a puzzle or it's one of those puzzle games that it's kind of two steps. It's solving it and then executing it. Yeah. Because a lot of them are time-based. Almost at least early on, a lot of them uh doors and things can only be open for 3 seconds. So you're setting like a queue of doors that are going to open that you have to run through perfectly and if you like clip a wall or whatever, you're going to fail. And it it has a quick restart. It's not a big deal and it also um, another quality of life thing is it'll save the strings that you've typed in the code so you don't have to continuously type them over and over. Um but I like that in a puzzle game, but that's where I got stuck sometimes is just not seeing like, cause it's not the highest, uh, 
um, resolution, right? So like a little green light and a little port on the side of a grate, if you're not looking directly down at the grate, it's kind of hard to spot sometimes. We might have compared this to a billion other games so far, but what I have been thinking of recently is actually uh, the Magic Circle, Hmm. just because um, there's a lot of hacking of other characters in that game. And it's Hmm. not coding per se, but it's kind of sandboxy. And this game, in contrast, felt very linear. A lot of it was counting. um, You could change the environment, but it was a little bit more straightforward. You had high student objective where that's very open-ended. I tend to like my... Uh, I guess hacking games a little more open-ended like human resource machine where I feel like there might be different ways to solve the same problem. But um, I did appreciate the way that you could combine different tools. You can combine different pieces. I can't wait to find out when they, um, I know they've made this open source and they have a level editor. So when people are doing a little bit more open-ended levels. I really would be interested to see how that turns out. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that too. So after we break into the train, and uh, it's a great tutorial level, but then the the game starts in earnest. And you know, you and your two compatriots, uh, who are really cute models, uh, the really, you know, really cute cube headed uh, friends, uh, Maisie and Lou, uh, who are su- super cute, but you go back to your hacker den, uh, which is a sort of empty space. And if you do a little sort of, they're doing a lot of environmental storytelling here to kind of explain who these characters are, what they're doing, you know, what all this hacking is about. Um, but you've, you've stolen the centerpiece of your hacking equipment, which is the CPU for your advanced Bien Jesu brand laptop or hacking deck. Uh, with VR goggles and all that, very 80s looking. It looks like a uh, looks like a uh, Virtual Boy. And um, Maisie, Lou, and our lead character Poncho are a part of a team that apparently uh, was trying to to do computer security on the right side of the law, but were unable to find work and have turned to the dark side and are now answering only to the highest bidder. And, uh, and so the rest of the game is kind of structured around you planning your heists. Yeah, there's a really funny, uh, talking about environmental storytelling, there's a really funny thing on the wall um, over by where um, there's like a machine that has like jobs are supposed to be coming in and there's never really any jobs over there. Um, and against the wall is a like nailed to the wall um, is a thick stick uh, stack of papers and you can pull them off and read them. And I, I don't know if I pulled off like 10 of them and I feel like it could just keep going. Um, it'll It's like rejection letters from schools, uh, jobs, uh, institutes of technology, all sorts of different things. It's just a form huge letter day. after form letter yeah. after form letter. We regret to inform you that we, are, you are not a finalist for the, you know, scholarship. Whatever you're not, you did not pass the, um, you know, requirements to attend this conference. It's just like yeah, all every sort of shutdown. You every can one find. of them, dear Impala Solutions. We appreciate your interest in Hunton Presley Limited. However, we ended up moving with another candidate team. Sincerely, Hunton Presley Limited. And they're all dated, so you get the sense that these folks have been um, trying to operate as a legit business for a couple of years and found nothing but failure. And so now you've turned to the dark side, these mild mannered glasses wearing, uh, you know, cube headed women 
and I think all of them are women. It's actually not really clear to me if the lead character Poncho is a man or a woman. What did you guys think? Pretty sure it's a woman. I think it's a woman. I, I, I couldn't so. really tell. Yeah, I mean, you're wearing the, a poncho. The, <laughs> so um, the uh, sound effects of the main character jumping and stuff, off, to me, sounded very feminine. But Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's pro- probably a team of three ladies. Um, one a little bit librarian-looking, one a little bit rebellious but perhaps with kind of a kind of a, a softer side with like nice uh, cardigans and so on cube shaped cardigans and then poncho who is wearing either a poncho or perhaps a uh, like a headscarf it's very hard for me to interpret these are square heads but i found myself really drawn into trying to figure out wh- who the characters were and what their deal was it drops a lot of little hints about them but there's no words in this game apart from what you find written on papers and boxes and things like that just like to look up the little details like the music always playing when you come back to your headquarters on the um they have one of the like what was the the place in the mall with the massage chairs sharper image sharper image the sharper image catalog had like the vertical cd players on the walls and they were (laughs) so cool they've got one of these in the hacker den and it's playing Christmas music or you know, classical music, whatever you decide when you come back every time. But the fact that they have a vertical one on the wall feels so like 80s, 90s, trying so hard that I that alone made the environment just so lovable <laughs> to me. Or or even or even better, the vinyl man that you carry with you. Did you spot yes. that? The you one of your hacker tools, which has no in-game use whatsoever, is a portable disc man that plays gigantic vinyl records. It's and you can put it on anytime you want, but yeah. the only only song you can ever listen to is uh I think it's Claire de Lune. That's why it's playing when you start, yeah. Um I have to uh just throw into i think now it's brookstone not brookstone. um not sharper image it um, is brookstone i was thinking yeah. in my head brooks brothers it's like nope that's a suit company don't say it uh, on the podcast you'll sound stupid so the game primarily plays out in terms of very short levels uh so e- e- each job consists of several sort of sub jobs so there the game is organized into these 10 jobs each of which which has a unique setting and you have three simulations or three objectives within each of these settings. So, um, you know, you walk up to your deck, you put the cassette tape in that plans the job, and you hook up to your your VR deck to start simulating the heist that you're going to perform. And there's three objectives. Each one is a separate little level, kind of. So ultimately, there's sort of 30 levels, I guess. There's 10 overall jobs, and each one has basically three main kind of things that you do. Um for each of them, uh, it kind of introduces a new mechanic. So each of the 10 jobs is kind of organized around some new thing that it's going to tell you how to do. Uh, and it starts with just the basics of trying to figure out how to use your deck to do basic hacking of objects around you. You know, your deck can, using Telnet, uh, connect to and detect and control objects in the world, things like doors and grates and windows. Um, and at first, you're doing those by choosing things from an interface on a menu, like we talked about in the, the train level at the first level. But very shortly, you have to start typing these things in yourself. So doing things like typing in door 10, open 3 for 3 seconds, and then you know your next command to do the next thing, and so on. As it starts building on those, you get a lot of 
new little kind of powers or or new apps, new tools for your deck, uh, and other new hardware that you kind of build up. Um, you get the ability to uh, write more complex programs, not programs exactly, but strings of commands that you kind of tie together so that you can have several things happen at once or things happen in a sequence, program it all in with your deck, hit execute, and things will just happen one after another without you having to go back to your deck and continue typing. Um, you learn how to uh, add things like weights and you know pauses into those commands so that you can time things to precisely happen at a specific moment. Um, there's a uh, an option to remotely trigger things so you can pre-write a program and then fire it off later once you're away from your deck by blinking a certain number of times, which was a cute way of firing those things off. And it gets even more kind of prosaic and, and amusing. There's little robots that you can have walk around for you, and those little robots can do things like uh, connect to data jacks on walls that you may not be able to reach from. Uh, you know, you can have them walk through small spaces and connect to data jacks that rem that are too far removed from for you to be able to use them directly. Um, and even little guns that you can program to aim and fire automatically. So it really gets quite complex, but it adds each one of those little mechanics on one piece at a time, slowly building on all of the other mechanics. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a fun progression um, on the one hand because you're constantly learning new things. Um, it very smoothly teaches you these new things. Um, uh but it is also like right when you start to feel like you're maybe starting to master something, um, you know, time to switch it all up and do something t entirely different. Yeah, probably my biggest complaint about this game is that it feels, at, particularly towards the end, it feels kind of like it's still teaching you new things, still giving you new tools. And so it feels a bit like a tutorial right to the very end. The last couple of levels are much larger and require a lot more sort of coordination of, of different aspects. Um, and I just wish that the game had spent a little bit, had maybe been a little more aggressive in teaching me things more quickly at the beginning and given me a little bit more time with those, you know, a little bit more, uh, you know, of these larger, uh, more complex puzzles towards the end. Yeah, I think that's kind of what Laura was getting to earlier is, you know, maybe some more open to the puzzles instead of this kind of like here's a thing you've learned now go do it in this order yeah i'm kind of hoping that the uh so he uh, brendan chung has already said he's going to be releasing more levels for this think of them as sort of deleted scenes um and he also has opened up the tools for folks to build their own levels and for once i'm actually really excited about the idea of additional content in this game like i'm not really a a big dlc person and i don't tend to revisit games uh, even if new content is released for them. But this might be an exception for me. I, I enjoyed this quite a lot and would really like some more more challenging levels. I could see this going in the Mario Maker route where people can do some just harrowing levels mm -hmm. that would be really funny. Um, and But honestly, I just want a couple places where I don't necessarily know I need to go through that door. Yeah, it, it, they, some of the earlier levels in particular were very, very, very linear. The The later ones give you a lot more freedom. Um, but even then, there is a sort of a critical path to them. Like there is a sort of a, like you can do a lot of exploring, but ultimately you're going to realize that there is one specific way to execute this that is most efficient and um, that'll, you know, let you... And I did start finding some interesting ways around things. I don't want to spoil some late game puzzle content, but like uh, I was banging my head 
endlessly against this part in the very final level where you have to get past a series of really complicated lasers and you have to do some uh, pretty precisely timed shutdown commands on the lasers in order to get past them. And uh, the game throughout, because you're playing through these simulations, gives you the option to go into a sort of a no-clip mode. In fact, it just calls it no-clip. You can turn on no-clip at any time and just drift your way through the level so that you can examine the puzzle from all angles and get a sense of where you're headed. And I realized that, okay, ultimately, I'm trying to get past this incredibly complex laser system into a room that has an exterior window. And I realized, why am I spending all this time trying to get into this room when I could go outside and shoot out the window and jump in through the roof? And I was able to skip that entire chunk of the puzzle that had been frustrating me for a good like 20 minutes at this point. And I felt totally justified in doing that because I felt like I had come up with a creative and interesting solution that skipped something that I was, you know, getting frustrated with. Not having fun with. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And there's, there's a few places where you can probably do things like that in these levels. And they wouldn't have put that, all those things there for if, if they weren't meant to be used if you know you had the ability to break the window you had the ability to go around i it's not like you were like breaking the game you're just like this is a better route for me yeah it felt like i was doing something wrong but then again it's a heist all bets are off and i felt really smart in the moment it was a really good uh like a good sort of aha and once i did that the whole rest of the level sort of fell into place that ultimately it is still sort of linear. You, you have an objective. Your job is to get from point A to point B and each, uh, you know, it's, it's designed with specific solutions in mind, I believe. Yeah. And to be fair, if I'm in the midst of a heist, I'm not really looking for my people to be, uh, you know, changing the game, mixing it up in the middle of a heist. I kind of, you know, how about we stick to the plan that we had? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Um, I, one thing that was, a kind of the same point that you're talking about, but a, a little bit different. I had a really strange thing happen to me at the beginning of the game before I really understood how the, the level system worked, uh, is basically I got, uh, the, the first level is like the top of a kind of a big building, kind of, you start on the roof of the building and kind of work your way down it. Um, not the train one, but the first like real job. And I got shot by the like turret thing and it broke the window behind me and I fell all the way down to the ground and survived and now I was down on the bottom floor which is actually where the the majority of the third job on the heist takes place but all the stuff is there all the <laughs> doors everything is there just not the objective so like in this one you're trying to grab like a weird sculpture from a thing and I didn't fully understand the uh, – I didn't – hadn't really looked – there's like a little – you can hit tab and it will pull up like a kind of a, a overview of the job you're doing as well as some of your um, skills and tools and things. And I hadn't really messed with that yet. So I didn't really know that I could like recap what my job was. I just kind of fallen down to this lower yeah. level. And uh, I spent like five minutes kind of pre-solving actually – uh, what would become the uh, heist for the you know the third job in that before I realized like wait 
none of this is actually seemingly to accomplish anything. And I went back outside and was immediately shot by that sentry gun and died. <laughs> well, you learned something about the uh, about the setting of the game, and yeah, I, I felt I actually ran into a lot of situations like that because there are three objectives in each of these spaces, and the whole level is in play from the beginning. Um, so you might find yourself in areas that aren't really relevant to your present objective, but it's all part of some part of the uh, of the job. Yeah, and when I very the very first time I opened the first level, I remember you can see the faint green outlines of a lot of the things you're supposed to open. I'd figured out a hack, so I just started opening skylights, thinking they were in my play, but they were actually drawn on rooms I couldn't get to. They were um, kind of overlays elsewhere. So it did take a little bit of checking, you know, especially for things that were just green outlines. Is this a real door? Is this in my room? Um, some of the planning stuff initially was a little confusing to me because it was so sparse, but I, I mean, I figured it out, but uh, it did take a second to realize what plane things were drawn on every once in a while. Yeah. I mean, for a game that, um, you know, detail is important, uh, it's real throwback uh, design style does get in the way sometimes, but I, I mean, it, kind of... yeah, it, it's, Clearly a decision, and I'm fine with it. I, this is – I don't want this to sound like a real strong criticism because it's also one of the features of the game. But sometimes when you are trying to move real fast through a thing and, like, click on something, pick it up, blah, you know, drop it over here, uh, the kind of inherent graininess of the of the game or the, uh, the blockiness of it um, could be hindering. But only sometimes. Yeah, it, it's a, it, the the objects in the world are kind of a strange mix of incredible minimalism and incredible detail. Um, like you look at some of the objects and some of the like the doors are almost universally just rectangles and walls of a pretty much solid color, and sometimes they don't necessarily stand out. Whereas sometimes you'll find a grate that you can't open that is so lovingly designed that it has you know uh, multiple polygons per bar and a tiny little label on it that will say something like this cannot be opened no really it can't be opened like uh, it, it, <laughs> you do kind of have to learn the game's language it's a visual language um, as you play through it to kind of get a sense of what's interactable or meaningful or openable and what's not and um you know something we something we didn't talk about yet that I think is worth talking about briefly is the way that the game intersperses these heist scenes with these sort of little story vignette moments to kind of let off steam. Um, you know, there's the ten main jobs. I think it's ten anyway. Uh, but in between each of those, you know, once you finish the three simulations that make up a job, uh, there'll be a scene that's not a job that's just about you. I guess getting through life with your friends, Maisie and Lou. I, I I think the first one that I remember, I mean, obviously there's the scenes that happen kind of in your, uh, in your base, but you know, I remember one of the early ones is that between uh, heists, suddenly (laughs) you're just on a roof with Maisie and Lou and there's some badminton equipment there. And uh, Maisie is sitting, reading a trashy romance novel and swinging her feet and you and Lou can start batting the badminton shuttlecock around. And 
you know, why does the game take its time to let you play badminton with this character? Well, it's really just sort of about giving you a feel of these people's lives. And it, it really feels like a good way to kind of let off steam from the, uh, from the like detail oriented, uh, I guess, action of the, of the levels. And there's something like this in between each, uh, in between each job. And it does tell a story much more, uh, than, I mean, I'd say that, like, if you look back at things like uh, 30 Flights of Loving, that was all story. Um, and this game is much more game. There's much more game here than there was in something like 30 Flights of Loving. But that sort of commitment to this style of storytelling that is really unique, I think, to um, to Brendan Chung's work is still there in evidence. And and it's, uh, it's still really effective uh, to the point where I, I kind of found that those parts of the game, the sort of quiet environmental storytelling and wordless sort of character work, I guess, uh, was almost as important to me as the mechanics of the game. It really helps drive things forward. Uh, I really wanted to complete these jobs to see these characters off to their eventual, you know, uh, whatever is going to happen happen to them. I mean, that's the mark of a good... Uh, I Well... That is such a major part of the games that we tend to look at on this show, right? It, it It's a fully realized environment. It's a fully thought out game. I mean, I think everything in this game is a decision and was thought about and, and once for a while you, for, for four years. Yeah. <laughs> four right. Years, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but it wants you to consider everything. Um, you know, there, I think of, um, Trying to think of like other heist games, you know, we did like Gunpoint. They kind of did the same thing, where like you you do kind of start to care about the characters, and it's not just like a puzzle game. It's you know you're doing this because you want your character to do well. Yeah, um, there wasn't much of a plot, and I mean there was some plot and volume, but yeah, not really. the plot and volume was okay. But here it's here it's I, I found it really worked for me, and the the world building is really interesting too. You're in Portland. I think, but it's uh, it's this bizarre, unrecognizable 1980s Portland where everyone is uh, living in old trucks uh, that, uh, that have been put up on poles, and the uh, you know the signs are all in Chinese, and you know robots roam the skies, and you can download someone's brain into a, a five and a quarter floppy. You know, it's it's very it's unrecognizable, and yet. It feels – I felt more connection with it than you would expect for a world that is so, like, clearly based on the absurd. I would definitely recommend playing it in in relatively small chunks. You know, I, I know that my experience differed a little bit from yours. You guys were trying to catch up with me, and I always feel bad when it turns out that way. But I played this game over a period of about a week uh, each, uh, each job and its little story segment that came after it. I just play – in one sitting and you can beat you can do each of those in 30 minutes maybe an hour if you get stuck um so altogether the game took about six hours for me um and it was played over over a series of of short chunks over about a week and i think that's definitely the way to approach this game is don't beat your head against these these puzzles if you get stuck maybe take a break from it come back to it later things will will make more sense um but yeah about six hours altogether um and I totally recommend this game. You can find this on Steam and on the Humble Store, and also, of course, from the developer's website, and it is 20 bucks. 
or 30 if you buy it in the deluxe edition that includes the optional art book. And I think every indie developer is going to be ripping off this art book design. Uh, I think in a year, every indie game that gets released is going to have this pretty much ripped off exactly because it's a very clever way to, to present this material. This game is beautiful. It has all these interesting character models and objects and so on. And, and I really wanted a way to kind of go back and experience all that stuff. And the, uh, the art book is just, it's a, it's a separate program that you run. It's not part of the game. It's an actual separate executable. And when you boot it up, you just get an interface that's beautifully designed to let you look at all of the objects from the game. And each one one of them, you can pull it up and rotate it and look at it from any direction, and you can see a description from Brendan Chung about what he was thinking about with it. No wonder you're getting Katamari vibes. Oh yeah, that part, very like the Katamari Damasi. Um, it's like that Twitter account that posts a picture of every Katamari object. It was exactly, kind of like that's that. what I was thinking of. Yeah, and on the uh, on the other side, I mean, I think uh, you know, I absolutely recommend picking up this game. It's fun. I do think playing it in the short burst makes the most sense. Um, it it's fun. It's really interesting. It's challenging in a lot of ways. Um, I I can't think of any. You know, we've compared it to a lot of games for sure because it's you know it it definitely draws from a lot of different things. But I've not played a game that felt this exact you know felt the same as this game. Yeah, it's very unique. Yeah, there's not a lot of games that match the. Um need for precision without the time crunch. Like there's, there's time crunch on individual puzzles, but it's not like, um, say a volume when like, there's not the fear that a sentry is going to shoot you. There's, there's a lot of different emotions here. It, I really enjoyed that mix and it felt very unique. Yeah. That's a good point. It's hacking and infiltration, but without, without stealth exactly, or at least not the kind of thing you'd associate with a stealth game. You're not it's a different tension. Yeah. yeah. You're not ducking behind stuff very yeah, often. And you're, you're never spotted except by a camera and those you can hack. So it's, it's a very different approach to, to kind of infiltration as a, as a thing. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you can find this game on windows exclusively right now. Um, but it is coming to Mac and Linux in September of this year. So pretty soon, uh, they've got those ports coming out, uh, pretty shortly. And, uh, it looks like we're going to continue to see uh, content release for it. And I'm continuing to look forward to that. So definitely check this game out. I believe it's 20 bucks uh, or 30 with the digital art book and a couple of other little extras that are part of the deluxe edition. And so what are we going to be playing next? I think it's going to be, uh, Abzu, uh, and that's on the PlayStation four. Um, i I played Abzu a little bit at uh, PlayStation Experience, and it was so gorgeous and so clearly inspired by and apparently actually worked on by the art director of Journey um, that I was like really looking forward to it. And it came out and it's gotten I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the, the game has gotten uh, slightly mixed reviews. Um, a lot of folks really, it's been kind of polarizing. A lot of folks really, really enjoyed it and other folks didn't. And I think it's surprising that a lot of these reviews read just like the reviews that you would have seen when Journey first came out before there was a sort of a critical consensus that Journey was a masterpiece. There were a lot of folks who played it and said, what, this is a game. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of that same kind of response echoed in the reviews of Abzu and, um, you know, spoilers, I think it's totally worth playing. So I recommend Abzu on, uh, on PlayStation four, and we're going to be talking about it next week. Um, you know, how it's 
very similar to and different from uh, short game favorite Journey. Yeah, I mean, having never played Journey before uh, doing it for the show, it uh, immediately ranked very, very high up on my list of games. Not just that we've done for the show, but just in general. Um, the whole experience was so fantastic. Uh, even it, a game being... Um, Mentioned in that same, you know, vein is enough for me to be excited for it. And plus it's underwater. Oh, yeah. Fish. Oh, now you make, now I hate it. <laughs> it's like me and books about the arctic you can't do games underwater the whole thing is underwater it's gaming's biggest water level oh god oh, the uh the sound of sonic drowning will forever haunt my my memories oh. wah, wah. <laughs> wah, wah. and also uh this weekend on saturday in Chicago, there's uh, Bit Bash again. Uh, that is the Indie Game Showcase Festival, uh, general weirdness in the West Loop. And I'm actually volunteering this year. So um, if you want to see me, I'll be uh, working the real human basketball table from 5 to 10. Wait. It, is, <laughs> it is a free game on, on itch.io. Okay. Um, about what looks like mechanical ATATs playing basketball. <laughs> I was also, yeah. The table also has a game called Arena Gods, which I haven't played yet. Um, I, but I'm really excited for these uh, two weird little sports games. I don't know what part of me said, let's put her at the sports table, but I'm going to go with it. And uh, I'm going to be all day in the morning walking around and playing everything else. So... Hopefully we'll get a lot of good ideas for future episodes. That sounds couldn't awesome. Tell if, uh, I couldn't tell if when you said real human basketball, if um, that was the name of a video game. Or, or if, if I was actually just watching people play basketball. Yeah, well, it's like yeah. a video game conference, so you have to like define, no, this is real human basketball. I wasn't actually sure when I looked at the registration <laughs> sheet if I was going to just be umpiring like a, let's play actual games. No. <laughs> Hey guys, no, guess what I've invented? Yeah. Weird little free itch game, and I'm completely down. That sounds awesome. And uh, if so, if you're in the Chicago area, don't miss Bitbash this year. And I guess if you're not, uh, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Short Game. Uh, I'm Reagan Kelly. You can find me on Twitter at Reagan K. That's R A Y G A N K. And you can find our show on Twitter at underscore Short Game, uh, or of course on the web at www.theshortgame.net, or on iTunes if you search for Short Game and love if you leave us reviews there and thank you so much to those folks who have been doing that lately we uh we appreciate it uh laura where can people find you apart from at bitbash you can find me on the internet on twitter at laura j nash and nate where can people find you you can also find me on the internet on twitter at nate stl and catch us next week on another episode of the short game